by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Ready? Let's pray. And Father, Gordon, um, we ask you to be with Tony, Lord, today as he um, preaches um, this word to us, Lord, as he, um, as he opens up the, this, this glorious, glorious truth that we are justified not by our own efforts, but by our faith in your efforts, Lord. Um, Lord, let our, all of our hearts be um, not only informed, and shaped but gladdened um, by this news today. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Everybody wants justice. We all like it. We all desire it. So that whenever we see news of someone doing something evil, um, part of us gets upset, Right? Even if it didn't happen to us, we recognize it as being wrong, and so some part of us cries out for justice. That becomes intensified whenever it's against us, right? Who here has been wronged before at some point? Been cheated or been talked down against or been, been spoken against by someone close to you or far away? We want justice, right? We want justice. But we're sitting in a cafe... The waitress brings us two slices of bacon instead of the three that she owes us, right? We want justice. I paid for that, right? From the silly to the extreme, we want justice, fairness. But at the same time, we're inconsistent. We want justice for ourselves. We want justice for others that we can empathize with. But there are times... Whenever um, our idea of what's just and what's good isn't exactly completely fair, right? So if we're uh, waiting in the checkout line again behind somebody who's ordering a, you know, a soda or something like that, 
and the, the, the person looks at them and says, oh, you know, you just take that soda for free, right? A lot of us will be like, what do you mean take that soda for free? They have to pay for that, right? But if it's us coming up in the line, and it's the manager that's standing there that says, oh, just have this one on the house, what's our response? Any, any of you ever look at the manager and be like, no, I'm going to pay for it, right? Because it's fair. Maybe some of us have that type of personality, but most of us, most of us, um, we like the inconsistency sometime when it's in our benefit. We curse when we hear of uh, businessmen and businesswomen and corporations that skip out on taxes, but some of us um, maybe have recognized we didn't do our taxes quite correct and maybe should have done something else, and we're like, well, maybe I'll just let it slide a little bit, right? It's just a little bit. And besides, the government's gotten so much money from me anyway. When other people do something wrong or do something we consider wrong and don't get in trouble, we cry out for justice. But when we get a leg up, we just call it good luck or a nice day. We all want justice, but we're inconsistent. The issue of justice and fairness righteousness and goodness is one of the largest and most difficult topics in Scripture. Every single one of us has an innate sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's just and what's unjust, but that sense is corrupted by our own sin and by our own selfishness, by our own ways. Every single one of us understands, at least on some level, that um, you never really fully get away from the sin that you commit or the things that you do. We all stand before God as people expecting some form of judgment. You can see that beyond Christianity in the various faiths, other pagan faiths, that, that built-in expectation that you can't just do wrong and do wrong and do wrong and have nothing happen, right? Some think of, you know, they invent systems of like karma, right? So if you're reincarnated, if you do bad in one life, you'll be reincarnated into another life and, and you'll be in a worse status because of what you did. Um, in, you know... Other cultures, it's just the idea of what goes around comes around. Borrowing language from the Bible, you reap what you sow. And so for many of us who feel some sense that judgment is coming, that we're not perfect, that we have problems, the question becomes, how how do we escape? How do we get out from under, whatever that judgment will be, whatever form that it takes. How can we live at peace with ourselves and our position to know that all is well? It's a heavy topic and one that we'll dig into today. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. We have a lot to read and a lot to make it through. So we'll, we'll start here. 
in verse 15, says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because, the works by, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so in this text, we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia. It's a church that he was a part of the planting process in. There are people that learned the gospel from him, people that came to Christ through his ministry, and he traveled off to go elsewhere, and he receives a report that the Christians in this community have encountered false doctrine. Um, a group of people that a lot of people today will call the Judaizers have come into the church and they've gone to this mixed group of Jews and Gentiles and said, you, that judgment that's hanging over you, that you sought to escape by turning to Christ, by becoming a Christian, hear me, it's still hanging over you. And those of you Gentiles who aren't circumcised, which was the mark of being a part of the Jewish covenant, you're in trouble. Because if you just live along your merry life and you never actually submit yourself to the law of Moses, even though you say you know Jesus, you're still under judgment. So that's what this group of, of people called the Judaizers had come in and started teaching. And Paul hears about it, and he hears that there are those in Galatia who are starting to believe that truth. And he's worried. He's upset. And he writes to them. And he starts off by saying, we ourselves are Jews, right? Paul was a Jew. He traveled with other Jewish people. He said, we're Jews, and yet we know. Yet we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we Jews, we people of the law, we people who know it well, know that it's not through works of the law, religious activities, that we're saved. Paul and his uh, party members that were Jewish had lived good lives as law-keeping Jews. Elsewhere in the scripture, Paul not really boasts, but kind of lists his Jewish qualifications and how well he had kept the law and calls it worthless. And so he writes to this mixed group of Jews and Gentiles and says, it's not like we'd never heard of the law. It's not like we didn't know that circumcision existed whenever we were preaching to you. We knew about that stuff, but we also knew that it's not what saves you. It's not what justifies you. In verse 16 by itself, and I don't know if we can come back up on the screen here. In verse 16 by itself, Paul says some form of the phrase that not justified by works of law three times in one verse. Do you guys see it up there? The first place, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, right? And so in a little bit, a little bit farther, it says, so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, 
and not by works of the law. That's the second mention. And then he tags it on the end again. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In basically one giant sentence, Paul says the same thing three times. People are not justified by works of the law. So what do you think Paul's trying to teach in that verse? People aren't justified by works of the law, right? It's the obvious answer. He says it three times. So confused and so mixed up are the people that he's writing to, that he repeats it over and over and over. Um, now, I want to I take a moment here because I want to admit that some people in this room, whenever I use terms like justification, you may be thinking, well... I don't use that every day. Like, I'm not just walking up to somebody at my workplace and say, how's your justification today? You know, it's just not a, just not a term that we use. Um, the term justification is, is basically a legal word. Um, it has to do with your legal standing before someone who is a judge. Justification, I mean, in, in short, is, is basically the proclamation that you're not guilty, Right? If you do use the word justified, it's probably, um, it's probably in a different sense. So, you know, you're at home, and you're supposed to do a bunch of chores that day, but you didn't do them, right? And your spouse comes home and takes a look around the house and says, oh, what have you been doing today? The dishes pile up and the laundry spilling out of the, you know, and the clutter everywhere. And, uh, and you know the question is not really, what have you been doing today? It's how come this stuff isn't done, right? You're, you're supposed to do it. And so what do you do? Justify yourself, right? In the moment. Well, I woke up kind of late, and I wasn't really feeling all that good, and then I got a call from somebody, and I had some things that I had to do with that call, and then I was really tired, and so... I didn't get anything done, right? Now, all that stuff may be true, but a lot of times we'll, the other the person will respond is like, don't justify your laziness, right? That'll be the response. Don't declare yourself not guilty because of these circumstances whenever you promised you would do these things. Justification is the sense of not being guilty before a charge. And then some of you may be asking, so what exactly are these works of law? If we're not justified, if we're not excused, if we're not declared not guilty from our, our sins and our failings based on works of law, what are works of law? Um, in short, the works of law, specifically the work of law Paul was referring to here was circumcision. Um, the removal of the foreskin from a male baby or a male adult that converts into Judaism. Um, it was a ceremonial thing that was done and is still done today among some people and cultures. Um, but it was done for the purpose of being a sign that this child, this male child, is under the promise of the Jewish people, right? And so it was a work of the law. It was something that the Jews did to show that this child, these people are in. 
so that if you're not circumcised, you're not in, you're out, right? There were other works of law that a person could do, um, ceremonial giving and, and uh, the, using being a part of the whole sacrificial system of the temple, not eating certain foods, abstaining from work uh, on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday for them. Those were considered works of the law, and if you didn't do these works of the law, then your identity as a person who was loved by God and, and considered part of God's family was in question. So three times Paul says you're not justified by works of the law. You're not justified by works of the law. You're not justified by works of the law. Paul had lived his life as about as good of a law-keeping Jew as you could be, but he knew that that wasn't enough. He knew that he himself hadn't kept the whole law. He admits to it in the book of Romans and says that he has a, had a terrible problem with covetousness, which is breaking one of the Ten Commandments, being, being envious of the things that other people have. And he knew that he would stand before the judge a judge with perfect knowledge of every law he'd ever broken. Hear this from the book of James. Um, this is James chapter 2, 10 and 11. This is what the apostle James says. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What the apostles taught is that we're all sinners, right? Every single one of us, we're all sinners. Even if I look at myself and say I'm a better sinner than you, <laughs> I'm still a sinner. Maybe I've not cheated on my spouse. Maybe I've never killed anybody. But I've sinned. In a thousand ways, I've sinned. And if we've sinned, we've become a lawbreaker. Let's move on to verse 17 and 18, back in Galatians. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So here's the accusation of the, of the Judaizers against Paul, right? And think about this for a second. They're saying, so Paul, it sounds like you're saying that a person can be a sinner... And if they just believe in Jesus, that they can do, live however they want. That in some twisted way, Jesus becomes a servant to the sin, right? So I know I sin, but that's covered by Jesus, so I'm okay. And Paul, your Bible probably has an exclamation point. Um, says, no, no, certainly not. It's the exact opposite. He says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says, if I'm a Christian, and I've accepted Christ, and I've believed in the gospel, and I make the active decision to return to keeping ceremonial law, 
to keeping good, good works and good works of the law as, as justification, that I've basically declared the work of Jesus as not enough, right? I believe the gospel, but I'm still in my sins because I need the law to get me out. Verse 19 continues. It says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Hear Paul in this. Strict adherence to the law didn't get Paul where he needed to be. It didn't, in the end, actually help him. It didn't save him. Paul himself would have looked back on the history of Israel and would have seen a cycle that happened over and over. God comes to the people of Israel and he says, I love you, I'll forgive you, just please keep my commands, right? And the people of Israel would cheer, okay, that's great. And a generation later, it's like they'd forgotten everything. They'd forgotten God and they'd gone back to their own way. And so God would send somebody or someone to say, come on now, come back. And the people of Israel would repent. You know, we're going we're gonna to follow God. And then a generation later, they're gone again. It happened over and over and over. And Paul would have known that. And he was going to try to escape the cycle by being the best Jew he possibly could. He'd follow all the law. He'd dedicate his entire life to being the best servant of God that one could possibly be. He had all the law in his corner. In the end, despite all of Paul's effort, instead of being a great cycle-breaking Israelite, he ended up being on the other side. First time we meet Paul, he's approving and sanctioning the execution of a Christian. And as we continue to get to know Paul, we get to know him not as a great, you know, symbol of God and a great, you know, example of what it is to be a person of God. We find him instead as a murderer who takes it upon himself to hunt down God's people and put them to death for their heresy. Despite all his efforts, he ends up sinning deeply. Verse 20. We go from Paul's sadness to his hope. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He had to die to the law in order to live for God because strict adherence to the law didn't get him to where he wanted to be. And whenever he died to the law, his entire identity of what it meant to be a person was done away with. 
His sin had defined him. But whenever he believed in Jesus, whenever he was transformed by Christ, his sin was nailed to the cross. So that it was no longer Paul, he says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me and through me. So Paul teaches whenever he accepted the gospel, it wasn't about him anymore. It wasn't about the rules he could keep. It wasn't about the effort that he could put out. It was about the power of Christ living in him. Day by day, renewal. Day by day, change in perspective. And he said that the life that he lived in the flesh... That is, um, you know, he still was a person with appetites and desires and uh, weaknesses, irrational emotions. Any of you guys ever have any of those irrational emotions? Like Paul in Jesus, still there, um, still getting angry, still getting frustrated. He says, the life I live in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God. So no longer, um, as he attempts to walk forward, does he look at a big long list and say, am I checking all the boxes? He instead looks to Christ. And he says, who's Jesus? Who am I in him? So here we see a picture of what it means to rely upon faith alone. That Jesus is everything. We find Paul no longer clinging to works of the law, but rather clinging to Jesus if I can just know him more, if I can just see him more clearly, if I can just give myself to him more fully. If I can just have real faith, I have everything I need. Verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We'll pause there. If you could get righteousness by doing works of the law, by keeping the good, being a good Jew that just has all the boxes checked and all your ducks in a row and, and all your ceremonial law keeping in order, then why did Jesus have to die? That's Paul's question. If it was possible, for people to be just good enough, to just do the right things enough. Jesus doesn't have to die. He doesn't have to go to the cross for sins, because sins can be dealt with through good behavior. Oh foolish Galatians, he continues, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Every week when we gather together, we talk about the gospel. We preach the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. You are a sinner. You deserve judgment. And Jesus was crucified to absorb the wrath of God that you deserve. Like that is at the center of the gospel. It's what we talk about every week. And it's what Paul would have spoken of again and again and again and again and again to the Galatians. And somehow, 
they started to be convinced that was what, what was clearly at the center was no longer at the center. The gospel is not the gospel without a crucified Jesus at the center. Unless his death actually does something or has some meaning, then how is it good news? And so he says, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Then he goes into four quick questions. We're going we're gonna to zoom through these. And the reason is, is because these are all rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious in the question itself. It's kind of like if I look at you and say, are you stupid? I mean, like, the obvious answer is be like, no, I'm not stupid. I'm sorry. That I, you know what I mean? It's a rhetorical question. You're not meant to just, like, argue the answer. So we're going to zip down through them, okay? He says, let me ask you only this. Uh, the first question, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What do you guys think the answer of that is? Hearing with faith, right? Are you so foolish? Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer is built into the question. No, it's the Spirit that's perfecting me, not the flesh. So Paul says, you, were, you, you came, became a Christian by faith, right? So is it now works that make you better? No. It's faith. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's referring to the sacrifices they would have had to have made whenever they became Christians. Now no longer socially acceptable. The answer to that is No. The suffering was worth it. And then the last question. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul says, look to your own community. Does the transformation that you've gone through Do the miracles that you've seen performed come from being good, law-abiding Jewish citizens? Right? Was your heart changed because you gave the right tithe? Was your worldview shattered and shifted because you had a piece of skin cut off your body? Or was it because you heard and had faith? Then he lifts up Abraham as a model. Abraham, the father, great-great-great-grandfather of the Jewish people, right? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a model of faith. He believed God. He believed God the first time he encountered him, and God told him to go to a place that I'll show you, literally pack up your family and travel somewhere, and I'll tell you on the way. And Abraham was like, okay. He believed that God was good, and so he packed up his family and he went. Later on, God told Abraham, even though you and your wife are like pushing a hundred, you're going to get pregnant and have a baby, right? And uh, Sarah, his wife, literally laughed at that 
she's like, you know, I don't even like to do the deed anymore because we're old. How am I supposed to get pregnant, even if it were possible? Right? But, but Abraham is like, well, okay. If I'm supposed to have all these offspring, I guess, I guess you're right. You're God. You're the one saying it. He believed. He made some mistakes along the way in that belief, but he believed. And then again, after he had a child by his 90-year-old wife, and, and he loved that child and saw that child as all his hopes and dreams come true, God comes to him again and says, take your kid up on a mountain and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham says, well, you've made a promise to me, and I know you keep your promises, and so you're telling me to go do this, and maybe you must be able to raise him from the dead. I don't know what you're going to do, but okay, I believe you. I trust you. He believed God. Abraham is the model, not of one that had a bunch of checkboxes to check, not as one who had a code to uphold, but as one who saw God, heard God, believed him, even when it seemed insane, trusted him even though it was hard. Faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. As messed up as Abraham was, God looked at him and said, you're righteous on the basis of faith. So some of you good Bible students in here might have some questions at this point. Um, those of you who aren't good Bible students, maybe, uh, maybe you've, heard, you've heard me and you've said, well... There's some problems here. Um, maybe you've heard someone quote uh, from the book of James. I'm going to read a passage out of James 2. Hear this. This is James, another apostle um, who speaks to similar issues from a little bit of a different direction. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Anybody catch any problematic language in there? If you think about the, the title of our series? The very end, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Not by faith alone. Inconvenient phrasing for diehard Protestants who like to lift up faith alone as one of their five solas. Uh, even today, there are accusations that get tossed back and forth as if the Apostle James was in one camp and the Apostle Paul was in another camp and they like wrote letters you know, to their mutual followers as if to like get groupies and fight against one another. 
as if they preach the opposite of one another. And if we read James, his arguments sound sound, right? Um, you say you believe, and that what, that's what justifies you. Demons believe. They believe that God is real. They know who Jesus is. That doesn't help them out, does it? And he also uses the example of Abraham. He says Abraham didn't just sit around believing. You know, so God tells him to sacrifice his son. He doesn't say, well, I believe you're God, and then just sits there. No, he gets up and he does something. Seems to go against what Paul's saying, right? Seems to. But there are clues in both texts that show us that Paul and James are not actually on opposite sides. Um, One hint should be that James talks about good works and doesn't use a term like works of the law. Um, But the picture becomes clearer whenever you read both books in their entirety. I'm not going to read both books in their entirety because we don't have anywhere near the time. But I do want to read a selection from Galatians towards the end. All right? So this is Paul again. And, and just listen to Paul here um, and tell me how it strikes you. This is Paul in Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, if the works of the flesh, now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You get the point that Paul's trying to make sure he doesn't leave anything out here. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So does that doctrine that we just read there, does that sound like someone who's using faith as a cover-up for kind of blatant ongoing sin? Right? If you believe in Jesus, then just live how you want. Is that what you hear in Paul there? It, I mean, he just wrote a big chunk of everything he could think of to say, no, this is bad, right? Don't do this. It doesn't sound like someone using faith as a cover-up for ongoing sins, like some people would like to claim. At the end of the day, we find that both James and Paul believe in the same gospel and put their trust in the same gospel. It's just that they're combating different extremes of error. There are those today who will want you to follow every rule that they can come up with. We'll refer to this as legalism. Right? Maybe you've heard this term. It's whenever a Christian is is filled with so much anxiety over their behavior that they, that they, they have to just check boxes. 
They have, to, they have to make sure they're not doing the wrong things and make sure they're doing all the right things. And they're anxious. And on the opposite side, we have license. Legalism and license. License says, Jesus saved me. I'm justified. He, he died for my sins. That means I can just live free. I don't have to be worried. Do whatever I want. Eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy what the world has to offer. Even if it means sinning. They're both combating different extremes in their writings. What we can know for sure by reading both is that faith, real faith, saving faith, the faith that justifies will result in good works in the Christian. It's, it's as solid as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right? It will happen. If you really do believe in Jesus, if you have the faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, it will result in good works. Paul talks about it as one who walks in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, he says, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If you've been changed, if you're pursuing Christ, it's going to change the way you walk. Even though you feel the desires, you won't be so apt or so quick to satisfy them in sinful ways. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Real saving faith. Real belief moves us and changes us. So when we encounter Jesus for real, when we meet him, when he regenerates our heart and we believe the gospel, he doesn't leave us the way that he found us. Over time, the old fruit drops away, the bad fruit, and new fruit starts to come. We're less impure and we're less sensual and instead we're more self-controlled and more faithful. We are justified by faith alone. But through the power of Christ, that faith will never truly be alone. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? We're justified by faith alone, but through the power of Jesus, that faith will never be by itself. So let's apply this just a bit. Do you want to be justified before God? Believe on him. Cry out to him. Trust in him. Do you want to grow closer to God? Believe on him. Put your trust in him. Cry out to him. Are you in a rut and you find yourself stuck in sins that you wish you weren't stuck in? The answer is the same. Believe in him. Call out to him. Trust in him. Cling to your faith. 
ask for more faith. The Spirit will cleanse our thoughts. It will change our actions. If you feel judgment hanging over you, if you feel anxious, friends, the answer is not a list of things to do to somehow make up for the sins that you've committed. The answer is Jesus. He died for you. Cast yourself on him. You're justified not by works of the law, but by faith alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to I thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. The fact that we can be saved at all is just a miracle through and through. We deserve destruction. And instead you gave us hope. Lord, we thank you for your son and his sacrifice for us. And we pray that his sacrifice would not be in vain. And we know it can't be. Lord, to the extent that we in this room still struggle with the flesh, we ask that you would, through the power of your spirit, Strengthen our faith. Help us to look to you and to be willing daily to crucify our flesh and our desires. To be willing daily to pursue you again. To be willing daily to trust in you again. Lord, if there's anybody here that struggles with a sense of judgment, we ask that you would go to them. You would help them, that you would strengthen them. Lord, we ask that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, that you would regenerate their heart right now, that you would open their eyes to see your glory and your goodness, and you would change their life. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as a community as well, to strengthen one another, to lift one another up, to go out into our city as witnesses to your great gospel, as preachers of the opportunity that anyone here in the city can have to come to you, to know you, to be reconciled to you. Lord, we believe and we pray with thousands of others throughout history that you would help our unbelief and you'd strengthen us as we go throughout the rest of our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.